The following sermon, entitled A Warning Against Sexual Uncleanness, 25th on the series on the Book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of August 28, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. For this evening's sermon, we will consider Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 7. For our scripture reading, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read God's Word tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, especially the second half, or really the middle and the second half that are relevant. This is God's Word to us. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by His own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and Make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and 
ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Thus far we read God's Word. Text for this evening's sermon is Ephesians 5, verses 3-7. through Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3-7. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetous, let it not be once named among you as become a saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. On the foreground in this passage of Scripture is a warning against sins against the seventh commandment. It's evident from the beginning of verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you. And it's these sins that Paul by inspiration comes back to and mentions again in verse 5, for this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So though there's more to this passage than sins against the seventh commandment, that's what's on the foreground in this passage. Gives us instruction concerning sexual purity. And will anyone disagree that we need such instruction? One might argue that, well, we considered this subject not that long ago when we looked at the seventh commandment in Lord's Day 41. And that's true. But given the prevalence of this sin, both in the world and in the church, given the power of this temptation and the nature of this sin, we need constant reminders to live a life of sexual purity. If the church is going to remain pure in this wicked world that promotes sins against the seventh commandment, we need regular reminders. We need such warnings against sexual immorality. And that warning comes to us as a part of Paul's overall calling to walk worthily of the calling whereby we've been called. That was the instruction back in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That is, God has set you apart. He's made you Christians. And now you are to live like that. That's the general theme of this entire second half of the book of Ephesians. More specifically, this warning against sexual immorality comes as the negative aspect 
of the positive calling that we considered last time, that we are to be imitators of God, that we are to walk in love. That was chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be therefore followers of God, that is, imitators of God. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given Himself for us. Part of what that means is avoiding the sins that are now described in verses 3-7 through so that when we set verses 1 and 2 side by side with verses 3-7, through we see there's a sharp contrast between the two. In verse 2, He called us to walk in love. And now in verses 3 and following, He warns against the great perversion and distortion of love. In verse 2, He called us to love in a self-sacrificial manner. And now, the Spirit warns us of sins of self-indulgence. So that if we're ever going to be imitators of God, if we're ever going to walk in love, it means also putting away these sins that are mentioned and described here in Ephesians 5, verses 3-7. through So that introduction in mind, we want to look at these verses using as our theme a warning against sexual uncleanness. First, we're going to look at the antithetical calling of the text. Second, at the solemn warning that it contains. And then third, at the Gospel message. A warning against sexual uncleanness. An antithetical calling, the solemn warning, and the Gospel message. In verses 3 and 4 of this passage, Paul by inspiration lists seven, excuse me, six sins, six different vices, and he puts them into two groups of three. The first group deals primarily with sins against the seventh commandment. The second group, although not exclusively, focuses on the sinful use of the tongue. And we need to at least familiarize ourselves with what's being mentioned here. So we'll go through those two lists. First, verse 3. There we read, "...but fornication and all uncleanness or covetous, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints." First, he mentions fornication. Fornication, very simply, is any unlawful sexual intimacy. Whether it's adultery, that is, a husband or wife engaging in intimacy with someone who's not their spouse, or what we call fornication, that is, someone who's not married engaging in those things that are reserved for the marriage bed. That's fornication. Then the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, broadens what he's talking about when he adds the words all uncleanness. When he speaks of uncleanness, he's again referring to Sexual immorality. Sexual impurity. And he's using a broader word that speaks of the sin as that which is filthy. That which is dirty. That which makes us spiritually unclean. And if anyone would ever try to say, well, he didn't mention this sin or that sin, so that must not be included. Well, the Spirit led the, Paul, the Apostle Paul to add that little word, all. Let all uncleanness not once be named among you so that every conceivable and imaginable sin against the seventh commandment is included 
under this warning. And that means included here is that great sin of our day, the sin of pornography, of taking pleasure in looking at videos or images that are inappropriate. Also included would be the sin of homosexuality. And we make mention of that because the parallel in 1 Corinthians 6 makes explicit mention of that and it puts it in this same category. Not just the act, but even the desire for someone of the same sex. So he speaks of fornication. He speaks of all uncleanness. And then he adds third, or covetousness. Covetousness. Covetousness is the desire for more and more. Specifically, it's the desire for what someone does not have. And now, in certain places in the New Testament, this word covetousness is applied to the desire for more money, for more possessions. So it has the idea of greed. But in light of the context and the fact that it's put this way, all uncleanness or covetousness, well, this is talking therefore about the desire for more and more sexual pleasure. It's the desire for someone whom you cannot have. Someone who's not your spouse. And because this covetousness in view here includes the idea of being so consumed with desire that one is constantly taking and taking and taking even to the hurt of others, that means included in this would certainly be the sin of sexual abuse. For as one commentator put it in describing this word covetousness, he said it's referring to a ravenous self-assertion in matters of sex at the expense of others. And does that not describe the grievous sin of sexual abuse? That too is included here in these sins against the seventh commandment. And the Apostle Paul later in the text identifies the heart issue here. Verse 5, he says, For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater. And by that addition, who is an idolater, it's saying that that's the root sin here. It's worshiping some other god, namely the god of sexual pleasure. When we've made that the thing that's most important, that in which we try to find our happiness, our satisfaction, well then we're guilty of the sin of idolatry. Sin against the first commandment as well. And that's really the heart issue here. So those are the first three sins, the first three vices that are mentioned here. that The Apostle Paul goes on to warn against. But then there's also another list of three contained in verse 4. And though it's not limited to, it certainly focuses on the sins of the tongue. Verse 4, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. First, it speaks of filthiness. And the idea of filthiness there is that which is shameful. You see, there are certain things that are so filthy that we would never do them or say them if others were watching. There are certain things that are so filthy that we would never desire them. We would never think upon them. If someone someone else somehow had access to our hearts and our minds. Because if anyone saw that sin, 
we would be ashamed of it. We would have this profound sense of guilt because of the filthiness of that thing. That's the idea of filthiness here. So that the reality is it's referring to that which is shameful for those who live before the face of God. For those who recognize that the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good so that even if no one else knows about it, God Himself knows about it and therefore I'm not going to commit that sin because it's shameful. It's filthy. Next, the Apostle Paul speaks of foolish talking. This is the talking that characterizes the world. This is the the type of speech you would expect to come out of the mouth of a, a drunkard. Someone who's lost all inhibitions. This is the type of speech that involves cursing and swearing. It's foolish talking. And finally, he adds jesting. And jesting here refers to crude and inappropriate jokes, especially those with some sexual connotation. The word here is literally the word for wit, which by itself is not a bad thing. But here it's put in the negative sense as someone who's able to take just about anything and twist it, turn it into some sort of inappropriate or crude joke. That's what Justine's talking about. It's talking about profane or risque or indecent speech. So we have here six sins, six vices, and the purpose of the Apostle Paul is not simply to list them off, to mention them, but to call us to put these sins away. That's the heart of verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you. Do not let these sins be named among you. And now the idea here is obviously not do not ever talk about them or address them because if that was the idea, well then the Apostle Paul himself would be guilty of the very thing he's telling them not to do. But nor is this language, let it not be once named, be once named among you, simply forbidding having these sins in the open. Being guilty of these sins from a public point of view. It's not saying that, well, so long as you keep these sins private and no one else can know about it, so that it's not named, it's not being publicly spoken about, then it's okay. That's not the point. And that needs to be said because is that not the temptation for us? I'm quite confident that there is no one here tonight who is walking openly in these sins, flaunting these sins for others to see. But how many of us are walking in these sins behind closed doors? How many of us are guilty of the very thinking that I just described that I'm going to try to keep this sin hidden? Going to keep it in check. No one else is going to know about it. Not going to let it get public. 
And so long as I keep it reined in a bit, then it's okay. I can indulge in it from time to time. If that's our thinking, then we need to hear the true meaning of the passage when it says, let these sins not be once named among you. And now that certainly includes that there not, ought not be public, open disobedience to these sins, to these aspects of God's law. That certainly is included in the Word here. And that becomes apparent when we take this passage and compare it to what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. That is, the sin of fornication was named among the church at Corinth. People knew about it. People could see there's a man walking openly in this sin. And that ought not be. It ought not be named publicly. But it's more than just that it shouldn't be public and open. But the idea of this language in verse 3, let it not be once named among you, is that we are to be so blameless with respect to these sins that no one would ever suspect that we could be guilty of them. The point is we are to remove these sins so far from our lives that any suspicion of them is likewise banished. The point here is that when it says, let it not be named among you, says, do not let it be found in your heart and life at all. So that if anyone ever would bring an accusation against you, it would be entirely groundless. So the idea is we're to put away these sins entirely. And that comes out in the strong language of the passage. It says, let it not be once named among you. And that's an excellent translation of the original here. Because the Apostle Paul is saying, let none of these sins, not even a little bit, none whatsoever, be named among you. And that means ultimately, he's calling us to address these sins in our thoughts and in our desires. To battle against them at that level. Because it does not work to try to hold on to the sin and keep it contained, keep it in its cage. I'll, I'll pet it when I'm behind closed doors and no one else is looking. But then when I step out into public, I'm going to keep it back there. It doesn't work that way. Because the nature of these sins is that they, they grow. You try to hold on to it and you feed it from time to time. That sin gets stronger. It, it grows. And as it grows, it only ever wants more. And that means we need to fight against these sins at the level of our thoughts and our desires. That's what Christ taught us when He told us that to look upon a woman, to lust after her, is committing adultery. He's teaching us we have to fight against even the sinful looks. The thin, sinful thoughts. The sinful fantasies and desires. And then he want, went on to say that if your, your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, 
cut it off. He's calling for radical measures in addressing this sin. Do not try to just take care of the the external sins and the open sins, but let it not be once named among you. That is, do not let it be found even in your heart or even in your mind. And now in calling us to so put away this sin that there could be no suspicion of it in our hearts and lives, the Spirit is thereby calling us to live an antithetical life. An antithetical life means a life that's different than the world around us. And that is indeed the calling because the world freely indulges in this sin. That was true in Ephesus. And for the saints who lived then, like most large cities in that day, it was known for its immorality. And that's true of the world around us. The world takes great delight in sins against the seventh commandment. The world openly promotes these sins and really glorifies them, especially in the entertainment industry, in the, the music, the, the movies, and the shows. And the world is ever calling to the church, ever beckoning her, come lie down with us. Come partake. Share in these sins. And thus we're called to be different. And that's a part of the passage. Verse 7. Verse 6 ends by speaking of the children of disobedience. And verse 7 adds, Be ye not therefore partakers with them. Do not share with them in their sin. Do not run in the same sins that they are running in. The calling here is to live the life of the antithesis. To be counter-cultural. Radically different from the world around us so that with Joseph of old, when we are tempted, we say, how can I commit this great wickedness before my God? That's the calling. And now we're given good reason to heed this Word. And the reason is that God has set us apart as His people, as saints. That's verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. You are saints. That's how the Apostle Paul addressed the Ephesian Christians at the very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus. Saints being literally the holy ones. Those who have been set apart. Those who have been separated. And not in a physical way. Not in a geographical way. But in a spiritual way. Set apart as those who are united to Jesus Christ. Set apart as those who are cleansed in Jesus Christ. Cleansed from the, the guilt of sin. So that all of our sins have been washed away. Cleansed from the, the power of sin so that the, the corruption of sin has been defeated. The, the power, the reign of sin has been broken in our hearts and lives. You are saints in Christ Jesus, says the Spirit through Paul. 
and now live like it. That's what he's getting at with the the language in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, he says, "Let Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. That word becometh means what's fitting it, what's appropriate. It's it's becoming of a saint that he does not have these sins in his life. And that's the same point being made in verse 4. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient. And then it goes on. And the idea of convenient is it's, it's not proper. It's not fitting. These things do not belong in the heart and the life of a Christian. That's what it means when it says which are not convenient. And the point being made is that sin is altogether unbecoming of a Christian. It doesn't fit. It's not appropriate to have these sins as a part of our hearts and lives. To use a somewhat silly and ridiculous illustration, it would be like someone going to the beach this coming week when it's very hot outside, but dressed in snow gear. If someone did that, he'd be entirely out of place. It would be unbecoming of him. He would stand out. It'd be all wrong. Well, that's getting at the idea of what it's like to have these sins against the seventh commandment, these sins of the tongue, as a part of our lives. It doesn't fit. It's not becoming, it's not fitting for a Christian. Therefore, do not let them once be named among you. Because God has set you apart, child of God. He's chosen you in eternity to be one of His adopted sons and daughters. You're going to now walk like one of the children of disobedience? You've been set apart and that you've been cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ. Washed clean. Are you going to make yourself dirty again with these sins? There are certain things that once we get them clean, we want them to stay that way. Whether it's the mother who cleans the home. Whether it's the man who goes to a meeting and gets out of the shower and puts on nice clothes. We want those things to stay clean. We, we like them that way. Well, why would we who have been washed spiritually, made clean in the blood of Jesus Christ, plunge ourselves back into the filth, back into the dirtiness of these sins? You're saints. You've been set apart. You've been set apart because the Spirit now lives and dwells within you. That's 1 Corinthians 6. He's taken up His abode in your heart and life. Are you going to now take that body that He dwells in, that temple, and join it to a harlot? You see, the reason for abstaining from these sins is exactly because of the, the good news of the Gospel that by the power of the saving work of Jesus Christ, we've been made saints. We've been set apart. Now the calling is to live like it. I 
That is the heart of this passage. But in addition to that main central message, there's a warning that's a part of this text. A solemn warning that's added in verses six, rather verses five and six. For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Paul is sounding a warning here. And this warning was needed, it was necessary exactly because of the false teaching of others who were trying to influence the church. There were others who were teaching the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying here in verses 5 and 6. And that comes out at the beginning of verse 6 where we read, let no man deceive you with vain words. The Apostle Paul adds that because there were others who were trying to deceive the Ephesians. They were using vain words, that is, empty words. Words that were void of any truth and full of lies. Words that were devoid of any spiritual substance. And they were trying to convince the congregation at Ephesus that it's okay to walk in these sins. God won't mind. You can hold on to the sin, you know, and still be saved. That's the message. And that comes out from the fact that those words, let no man deceive you, are sandwiched by the two halves of the warning. The one part saying, those who continue in these sins hath no inheritance in the kingdom of God, and then the wrath of God cometh upon them. It's saying, the point that is being made here is that Paul is trying to counter the very things that were being said. He adds this warning because the exact opposite was being taught to the congregation at Ephesus. And it does not take much imagination to guess at what was being said to them. How could something so natural, something that feels so good, possibly be wrong? God wants you to be happy, you know. Because God wants you to be happy. Why would He deny you something that brings so much pleasure? Or maybe it was something like this. Yes, it's, it's forbidden, but it's okay that you indulge here and there as long as you keep it in check. You'll be forgiven anyway. It's going to be okay. It was something along those lines that was the message, the deceptive message that was being brought to the church at Ephesus. And is that not the message that we hear in the broader church world around us? The broader church world around us in different ways is sending the message, it's okay to walk in the sins. A while ago, I read an article 
in a magazine of a Reformed church, at least Reformed in name. And the whole point of the article was that it's okay, it's actually not, it's more than just okay, it's good, if dating couples live together and engage in premarital sex because how else are you going to know whether you're compatible? The point of the article was try before you buy. Much more prevalent is the message of the vast majority of the church world that remarriage is permissible after divorce. Even though Scripture tells us in no uncertain terms that for one who is divorced to remarry is to commit adultery. On top of those things, there's the broader church world's efforts to try to embrace and to welcome the whole LGBTQ community. So that much of the church world is saying there's nothing wrong with those things. Or even if the act is wrong, well, the desires, those are perfectly okay. And even if the church world is not openly teaching those false messages, insofar as the church fails to discipline four sins against the seventh commandment, then the reality is that the church is sending the message. It's okay. You can continue impenitently in these sins. God won't mind. And thus we come to see how important it is that the Spirit led Paul to write in this passage, let no man deceive you with vain words, with empty words. Do not believe the lies that are being taught. Because God will judge those who continue impenitently in these sins. That's the warning. We just talked about the necessity of this warning. Now we want to look at the the warning itself. And the warning is sounded in verse 5. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God. verse begins by speaking of the whoremonger, the unclean person, and the covetous man. It's referring to the same three sins that were mentioned back in verse 3. It's using the same three words really, but now putting it in the, the noun form of someone who's engrossed in the sin. And that's significant that it's put that way. In verse 3, we have the sins themselves mentioned. And in verse 5, we have the sinners. And the idea is, this sin has come to characterize this person. This person is holding on to this sin, refusing to let this sin go. Verse 5 also speaks of the kingdom of Christ and of God. And it's talking about the Kingdom of Heaven that Jesus Christ spoke so frequently about. It's talking about the kingdom that's made up of God's elect people. And when it speaks of an inheritance, it's talking about having a place in that kingdom, being a citizen of that kingdom, and even having a portion of that kingdom allotted to you. And now we, we put the two together as the Spirit does, and we read, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, 
hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. So the warning is, those who continue in these sins impenitently, that word simply means refusing to repent, do not have an inheritance. You cannot suppose that I can continue in this sin all my life long without ever being sorry for it, without ever seeking forgiveness, and then turning away from it, and still end up in heaven. Because if someone holds on to these sins, refuses to let them go, those sins exclude that person from the kingdom of heaven. You have no inheritance. That's the warning sounded in verse 5. And the Apostle Paul confirms that warning by what he adds in verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The wrath of God is His judgment against sin. It's the the punishment He weets out upon the wicked for breaking their law. verse speaks of the children of disobedience. It's talking about those who persist in their sin. And it's saying, the wrath of God cometh upon them because of their sins. On account of these sins, God will judge. That wrath of God comes upon them. The idea of that coming is, to use an illustration, it's as though God's wrath is attracted to those sins. Those sins call out for God's wrath. Attracts God's wrath away that a a well-lit up enemy base in World War II would attract the bombs of the opposing enemies. The wrath of God comes, it says. It's put in the present tense indicating that wrath of God is already upon them. But it's ever coming. It's always coming in the sense that there's still a day of wrath that's pending. And the one who persists in these sins, who refuses to let go of them, is really just storing up wrath for that great day of wrath. That's the warning. This is the truth of God's Word. He will punish those who persist in these sins. Now, it's worth noting that the Spirit led the Apostle Paul to use a warning. And that's worth pointing out because there are some who shy away from the the warnings of Scripture. Who hesitate to apply them in any sort of way to the child of God. The reality is, this is a part of God's Word. Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, uses a warning. He uses more than a warning. It's not just verses 5 and 6 we have, but it's this message, this, this call to put away these sins is ultimately grounded in the Gospel. That was verse 3. Let it not be once named among you as become the saints. That's the main thing. That's the heart of it. You've been set apart. And that's the reason. That's the motivation for heeding this Word. But now on top of that, the Spirit adds a warning. 
you continue in these sins, if you refuse to let go of them, this is the judgment that will come upon you. And there's a purpose in that. Purpose is not to scare us into obedience. Sanctification does not come about by scolding or by threats. But instead, the purpose in the life of the child of God is to cause the wayward child of God to wake up to the seriousness of his sin. Because sadly, there are times that we too start to believe this lie. In fact, we often deceive ourselves thinking it's okay that I hold on to this sin for a time. No one else knows about it. I've been keeping it in check. And after all, God will forgive me the moment I repent of it. We sometimes deceive ourselves. And it's for that very reason that there are warnings contained in Scripture. Warnings that for the wicked who are never going to repent, never going to turn from it, leaves them all the more inexcusable. But for the child of God, there's a saving purpose here. And that God uses the warnings to, to wake us up spiritually. To say, don't you see the danger? Don't you see where this pathway that you're on is leading? It ends in destruction. For the child of God, God sometimes uses that to awake within us a a knowledge and an understanding of our sin. Yes, this is wrong. Therefore, I need Christ. That's God's purpose. May God use this warning for any here who are ensnared in these sins. If one of these six vices is a sin that characterizes your heart and life tonight, do not be deceived by vain and empty words. Do not suppose that God is perfectly okay with that sin. But instead, heed the warning, warning and repent. That is, humble yourself before the throne of God and in true sorrow for your sin, seek forgiveness. All the while trusting that there is forgiveness to be found. And that is the good news of the Gospel. The message of the Gospel is that there is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can say that because verse 5 here is not an absolute statement. It's not saying if you commit any one of these sins one time, you are therefore forever excluded from the kingdom of God and Christ. It's not even saying that if these sins characterize your life for a period of time, that that sinful period means there's no chance you could ever go to heaven. That's not 
what this verse is saying. And we could be confident of that because of the parallel in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 contains the same sort of warning. Notice 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. And now it gives a similar list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. And then it lists more sins in verse 10 and ends, none of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. But now notice what 1 Corinthians 6 adds that's not found in Ephesians 5. Verse 11. And such were some of you. This characterized your life before you became Christians. You walked in these sins, says Paul to the church at Corinth, but then he adds, so importantly, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. There is forgiveness for these sins. And thus we are to look to Jesus Christ and to His saving work. Which work includes the fact that He bore the punishment we deserve for our sin. He made satisfaction of God's justice because our sins, the sins of God's people, were laid upon Him heaped up upon the sin-bearer. And Jesus Christ then carried those sins all His life until He was nailed to the cross of Calvary for those sins. And as He hung there, bearing all of the sins of all of His people, if we can put it this way, He was like that well-lit-up military base. So that when the lights went out for three hours, God's wrath came upon Him. And you understand that wrath was far worse. Far more devastating than if for three hours bombs were continually dropped upon that place right outside of Jerusalem. Because Jesus Christ suffered the agonies and the torments of hell. The wrath that was to come upon us for our sins came upon Him. And thereby He paid the debt that we owe. He bore the punishment that we deserve for our sins. So that God can say to us tonight, I forgive you. But now not only did Christ bear the punishment, He also lived the perfect life of obedience. He, he lived the perfect life with respect to these sins. So that these sins were not once named about Him. No one could ever suspect that He was guilty of them. Though harlots came to Him seeking forgiveness, 
Though he dined with publicans, though he walked with sailors and fishermen, no one could accuse accuse him of infidelity. No one questioned the purity of his tongue. These sins were not once named about him because these sins were not once found in him. Never once was he guilty of fornication or any uncleanness or covetousness. Never once was there filthiness or foolish talking or jesting to be found in Him. He lived a life of perfect obedience. And it's that obedience of Jesus Christ that's imputed to us, that's freely given to us by faith, that becomes the basis for us to be accepted of God, for God to declare to us that we are righteous. That's the good news. And that's the encouragement to repent of these sins and to look to Jesus Christ knowing that there is forgiveness. And that, beloved, is cause for thankfulness. For gratitude. And for the gratitude that then becomes the motivation to now heed this Word. That's what drives the Christian life. Not a desperate attempt to try to escape the wrath of God, but thankfulness because Jesus Christ has provided the escape. And it's that thankfulness really that that replaces the other sins that that helps us turn away from those other sins. And that's a part of verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. And now when verse 4 adds, but rather the giving of thanks, it's telling us two things. On the one hand, it's telling us the giving of thanks is convenient. For saints, it is appropriate. It is becoming for the saint to give thanks. Exactly because we have so much to be thankful for. Because He's adopted us as His children. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He's working all things for our good, for our salvation, and Most wonderful of all, there's forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ. And because there's so much to be thankful for, it's convenient, it's becoming, it's appropriate for the child of God to be giving thanks. To be telling Him, to be communicating to Him, I'm so thankful for what You've given to me. That's part of what's being communicated when it adds those words, but rather the giving of thanks. It's, it is convenient. It is appropriate. But what's more, the other part is that it's telling us the giving of thanks is what is supposed to replace those other sins. In verse 4, there's a contrast between filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting on the one hand, and the giving of thanks on the other. These are exact opposites. Two totally different ways to use the tongue. And the point is we are to put away the one 
while putting on the other. It's thankfulness for all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ that drives the Christian life. With regard to how we use our tongues, with regard to our keeping of the seventh commandment. And thus we are to cultivate this thankfulness by meditating on what God has done for us and making us saints. Those whom He has set apart. And it's when our hearts are filled with thankfulness that we will then heed this Word so that these sins are not once named among us. May God so use His Word and grant His grace. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for the rich instruction that Thy Word provides us. We pray that Thou wilt apply it unto our hearts, cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.